Becoming data-driven is one of the many key goals that companies today are striving towards. By empowering their employees and stakeholders with data, organizations can foster insightful decision-making and create a competitive advantage. But how can we effectively achieve this and unlock the full potential of our data? Our guest for today may have the answer. In this episode of Cocktails, we're joined by the creator of DataMesh, who shares with us her journey on how she came up with the concept and the challenges associated with evangelizing it. We also talk about the specifics of what this paradigm shift in data platform architecture is, explore how it's different from existing data concepts, and dive into how organizations prepare for data mesh. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. As always, joining us all the way from Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. How are you doing? G'day, Kevin. I'm well, thanks. All right, fantastic. And our guest for today is a director of Next Tech Incubation in ThoughtWorks North America, where she focuses on distributed systems and big data architecture with a deep passion for decentralized technology solutions, the foundations for democratization, data mesh, decentralized trust and identity, and networking protocols. In 2018, she founded the concept of data mesh, a paradigm shift in big data management towards data decentralization and since has been evangelizing the concept to the wider industry. She's a member of the ThoughtWorks Technology Advisory Board and continues working on the creation of the ThoughtWorks Technology Radar. She has worked as a technologist for over 20 years and has contributed to multiple patents in distributed computing communications as well as embedded device technologies. Ladies and gentlemen, we're very excited to have Ms. Jamak Degani to the show. Hi, Jamak. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails. Hi, Kevin. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. I have to apologize for that long bio that I had sent you. It took half of the show. <laughs> no, no, it's it sounds super impressive. And, and some of your work is clearly impressive as well, which we want to talk about today, particularly the data mesh. But before we get into that, um, I'm really, we've had a couple of guests from ThoughtWorks on, on the podcast. And um, we're just really interested in how you guys keep coming up with these innovative concepts which end up sort of defining architecture in some way or the other so before we dive into the data mesh itself can you tell us anything about the process that you have there where you just come up with these amazing ideas and definitions that's an awesome question and i wish i could tell you that there is a process i think um uh, nobody probably knows exactly how these things happen but it has thoughtworks perhaps has the right ingredients and the condition for these ideas go from somebody with a critical eye and a critical mind questioning how we build software to go through a process of validating the new hypothesis and experimenting with clients and evolving the solutions and come helping out the other end, um, a new paradigm shift or a new concept. I think it's, um, it's really important to talk about what are those conditions and elements that uh, produces these ideas. And part of it is like having the right people, the critical thinkers and enough mass of those people 
in the company, I think the other in, in very important and very unique ingredient is this idea of an open IP that individuals within ThoughtWorks can create IP, write, talk, and they get encouraged. And they, they have a sense of ownership of that. Um, and we, uh, you know, our CTO and our leaders encourage thought leadership within ThoughtWorks. And then we have access to, you know, a set of global clients, which is a fantastic, um, I guess, experiment grounds to try different things and, and have a vantage point, fantastic vantage point to see patterns, to be able to kind of see patterns. Um, in fact, my role is to create a process to systematize and um, somehow accelerate and incubate uh, things that we do, but we do it a bit more organically. So it takes longer. Almost every decade we come with one or two new ideas. So how can we do that a bit more? Systematically, so maybe we can talk in a year and see if I manage to find the process for it. Well, was the concept for you of the data mesh was that a natural evolution of one thought process to another? Was it a eureka moment where you woke up in the middle of the night? How, how did it come to you? Yeah, I think uh, the the very first um, phase of it was well. I think prior to even seeing the data problem or seeing the patterns was the fact that I was in an adjacent world to the data world and I had seen the movement from centralization to centralization. I have lived through it, through the microservices, I suppose, revolution. So I had protocols at the protocol level, at network level. I was immersed in the world of distributed computing to a large degree. And then I came to the world of data, well, big data, the current incarnation of it at least analytical data. And I noticed that this world had just been completely isolated and I don't know, kind of frozen in time, about 10, frozen in time was in 10, 20, maybe half a century ago. And the values and the principles and assumptions were very much in conflict with everything else that had evolved outside of that world towards a scale with decentralization and distributed architecture. So I couldn't really grok this system of the world that we lived in. And I felt like maybe I was the child who pointed at the emperor and told that he wasn't wearing clothes. Just that kind of feeling that maybe I, I shouldn't be saying this, but it, it felt important to me. And the reason I kind of started hypothesizing with my colleagues and, and work on data mesh was that we had the need. We had four or five you know, clients that simultaneously around the same time, big clients, very forward, Technologically, they had big, you know, already investments in big data platforms, multiple generations of that. And they were yet looking for a solution because after spending so much money, they weren't getting results. So I guess those are the, the, the kind of ingredients that came together and um, kind of resulted in coming up with data mesh. And I was the silly little child who went and talked about it at first. Uh, and, and I had a lot of skeptics. Um, within the company and outside of the company, that um, this is this is speaking sacrilegious. Which is probably a good thing, challenging challenging you to uh, on the concept, and so you have to argue as to why you still think it's valid, right? So, uh, look, with how, tell us a little bit more about uh, data mesh and uh, how it differs. I mean, you've already touched on it in terms of centralization versus decentralization. For example, from a data lake, but can you just give us an overview of a data, data mesh and how how that data uh, uh, world has evolved uh, from data warehouses, data lakes? Absolutely. I mean, as a starting point, I think we have a 
delineation between data within the operational world, microservices, databases that are keeping the state of our stateful workloads, right? They run the business. And on the other side, we have Warehouse Lake where we um, aggregate the, you know, the byproduct of running the business, the data is generated and create these views that then we can analyze them, right? We can feed their machine learning models and so on. And that model for as, as, as our ambitions around analytical data processing kind of grows, we have more machine learning models, more of our business becomes, you know, intelligently augmented and data driven. That centralized model starts to fall apart at scale and the scale being diversity of the sources and the diversity of consumption models. So the data mesh at heart tries to solve that problem of scale. If you fast forward life, I don't know, 50, 20 years down the track in future and imagine that everything that we do is somehow being augmented with intelligence using the data and the data that feeds those models can come from anywhere, any source on the planet then it just doesn't make sense to have centralized solutions. At least for me, it just didn't make sense. And, and it was evident from the, at the you know, micro level within the enterprises that model wasn't working. So data mesh tries to that, um, solve that problem. And what, the moment you try to decentralize on a different access space in which you can scale out, and this access was, for me, today, the domains of business, how we are decompartmentalizing our businesses so that we can scale based on domains, then you are dealing with a decentralized distributed system problem, dealing with problems of siloing of the data, dealing with inconsistencies and lack of integration between that data, um, problem of who's owning what and accountability structures. So the rest of the data mesh um, principles, set of principles are addressing those problems that arise once you decouple and decompose the centralized analytical data solutions based on domains and based on the ownership of the modeling and the data itself within those domains. And it introduces a set of new set of concepts as, well, maybe those domains need to change and shift their thinking from data is an asset that I'm collecting to data as a product that I'm serving and I'm delighting the experience of the consumers around it. And then perhaps to really enable those domains and not incur an exponential cost of building up infrastructure, perhaps we need to have self-serving infrastructure with a different mindset that really we want to bring the, you know, the complex level of complexity and the cost of running and, and you know, observing and monitoring these data products low. So then we come up with a data platform model. And finally, it's always, uh, you know, it's, you have to find a governance model that works with this distributed system that while it allows this domain teams run fast and do what they want and you know model the data however it makes sense to that domain, there is a governance model that serves the common good and finds that equilibrium between autonomy of the domains but also interoperability and adherence to some sort of a standardization for interoperability and some form of enforcing policies that are important to be enforced at the level of each data product, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a global fashion. So what is, what, is, what is that mechanism? What is those, you know, 
levers that we can put in a governance model that finds that equilibrium between centralization and decentralization of policy decision-making and uh, and enforcement of those policies. And hence the kind of computational and federated model of governance came to exist. This concept of uh, domain ownership and, and productizing data it sounds a lot like microservices. We have a domain model associated with microservice. Uh, is it? Are we talking about an extension of that concept, where you you're just thinking of beyond the microservice and now servicing that data as a product to a wider community? That's a really good observation. I think it is. It's an extension to that model. And if we go back to the origin of microservices, is why we came up with this model was because, you know, the the work of domain driven design showed that modeling your large organizations, multi-team, multi-business unit organizations under one model and serving that model through services, applications, falls apart as you scale. So you have to move to a multi-model world and then around those models, and and I'm generally using the model just as a placeholder for services, business processes, their data, supporting them, the capabilities, the APIs, and so on. So once you break down those models so that the teams can have the right cognitive load to support it and build services, we can't, We arrived at a microservices architecture. And it's absolutely, you're right, that this is just piggybacking on that model and saying, okay, why can't we actually now have a new, um, we need a new structure. I'm not sure if it's a microservice, we call it data product and a data product container. We need a new kind of a structure that extends that microservice or set of microservices within that domain, whose responsibility is exposing this analytical data from that domain that the domain itself can use to train its machine learning or you know, fuel its reports but also other domains can use it. So it's interoperable with others. So it's an extension. And some people, you know, would say, what is this thing? Is this a data service? Um, Is this just another, um, you know, event stream out of my existing microservice? I think that's, that's the space for innovation and that's a white space. I have an opinion what it should look like, but that's just the first revision of implementation of this data product and its container around it, given the utility layer of technologies that we have today. And, and I really think, oh, and I hope that we, this is just the beginning of a series of innovations around that. Concept. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of, you defined automation 2018, right? So we've had a couple of years um, since then. Have you seen any evolution in terms of the adoption and the concepts and has uh, your own thoughts on, on, on the concept when you first defined it? Yes. So I can tell you, it actually takes a couple of years before people actually pay attention to you. So yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just, it's funny because we have the original article on Martin Fowler's website and he sends me these um, kind of visits and reviews. And my article is always this, and, and the, the, there's a plot of um, kind of access over horizon of time. And my, my article is always this little lonely pale gray dot at the end of the outside away from all of the other um, kind of articles where they fit in terms of access and how that's changing so it's just caught on fire even though this came from you know multiple a couple of years ago so i think what is happening right now is a lot of technology vendors are taking the kind of the easiest path 
to map the existing technology that they have, their roadmaps, you know, their strategy for their products to data mesh. And the easiest path is, you know, you just change your marketing content. You start, whatever you marketed as data lake is now data mesh. Uh, and you try to kind of do your best to see how those products can be used. Um, and we have used, I mean, our implementations have a layer of custom code in terms of creating this data product container and managing it and provisioning it and manage its life cycle. But underneath all of that, we are using the existing storage um, um, storage capabilities. Uh, we're using um, data processing capabilities. We're, we're using all of those famous tools that everybody else is using. And what have we have found is that configuration of these tools in a distributed fashion is really hard and you run into limits. Simple as the number of storage accounts that you can have you know, on a cloud provider might be limited, and it is <laughs> for some. So you can't have this independently you know, managed and autonomous data products. If you want to have hundreds of data products, you just simply run out of storage accounts as a starting point. And then infrastructure cost actually increases because you know, you, you just exponentially <laughs> growing the number of resources that are allocating to smaller data products. But it is doable. It's just hard and expensive. And I don't know, it looks like a Frankenstein's been kind of stitched together. And there is a layer that's missing that we are building on top. A layer that's missing now that you're trying to build on top, is that what yeah, so I, I put this in my kind of second article and I tried to kind of class, classify the set of um, technologies that I think are needed and missing. Uh, I would say the bottom layer of that technology, whether we call it like base infrastructure or utility layer, this is your storage, workflow, workload processing or you know, job processing, data, data processing. It's your multimodal kind of access to data, different kinds of storage. So that, you know, services, APIs that, that exist, you can manage your APIs and, super, you know, services on Kubernetes. So that layer exists, but as we talked about, it needs to be reconfigured, priced differently so that you can use them and combine them into these data products independently rather than one lake or one warehouse. The second layer of that is, um, I call it data product experience layer. By experience, I mean the experience of people who are providing these data products and people that are using data products, people that are managing these data products need a new set of capabilities that I can just simply declaratively um, you know, define my data product, this output ports and what type of data it's sharing, semantics, schema, and here you go. I have it, I don't know, DM cuddle, like a data mesh control plane interface, go and you know, provision this thing and then people can come and consume it. So that level, that layer is certainly missing, that concept of data product itself and its container and its APIs. And then the level above it is the emergence of, managing the emergence of kind of intelligence at the mesh level and giving access to people at the mesh level. So how can I search, browse, explore, at the mesh level? How can I see the emergence of some sort of a knowledge graph at the mesh level? So, and, and those capabilities somewhat exist today. Again, we have various versions of data registries and data products, but they built based on a different assumption. They built based on the assumption that data is this messy, 
uncleans, bits and bytes that somebody dumped on the disk and or, or is in the silo of my you know, application databases. And I need to kind of go and gather and look around and, and somehow make some meaning and insights out of it. Like assume, for example, this particular file dumped on this disk is high quality because um, I have a lot of users for it. And that's a very different model than what data mesh says, and, it, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe that will never happen, but what data mesh says is data is a product, it's intentionally exposes, it's a silos around quality, it's data schema, it's data semantic. And yes, we need a mesh level of global place of like giving access to all of those and aggregate them. Um, but but we're intentionally sharing that the same way we're intentionally sharing APIs. Speaking of APIs, um... With security of, of these uh, uh, data domains and, and, and product owners, is it the same challenge associated with uh, APIs, sharing APIs with an organization and, and securing those APIs and making sure that the, the data available through that API is accessible to the stakeholders that should have access to it? Or, or are there wider uh, security issues that people should be aware of? I think it includes includes the things you've mentioned, um, but it also has wider implications. And I'm not sure exactly security is the right umbrella term, but security, privacy, consent, like all of those things yeah. um, um, is there. And then the, the access model is slightly different. Um, you know, if I want to do a population analysis, I don't necessarily need to know, you know, population, let's say I have a population of users and I want to do some sort of a, analysis on the statistical shape of like what the age groups and so on. I probably don't know, need to know as a consumer the exact um, the exact addresses, but if 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 there is a differential, you know, um, privacy being applied to it, then I can go and um, find um, okay, I can still do population analysis without without um, accessing individual individual roles. So so there are additional concerns that we need to consider around um, security as an umbrella term of data product. And then in terms of how we're gonna implement this, I think this is exactly where we can learn a lot from what happened in the microservices world with zero trust architecture and enforcing policies and security and access control and encryption and all of those good things at the granularity of every access points in this case would be like an app report on a data product on a single data product and be able to do that you know we'd be able to change those in an automatic automated fashion and configure and author those policies and push them to those data products um, very quickly uh, with automation and be able to observe them so i think there is a lot to learn there and this is actually a very uncomfortable space for uh, people that come from the traditional big data because of its centralized nature, um, you know, forever and ever, we just did security by parameter or putting, you know, guardrails around the body of the data and the accounts that can access them. But here we can really secure not only every single data product, but also we can monitor and change those security parameters uh, in an automated fashion um, and then if we create this new concept of data product, which is, which is beyond just the data itself, yes, it has pointers to the where the data is stored and it has the management of that storage, but it also has mechanisms for policy configuration and policy enforcement, then 
the sky's the limit. Like you can just keep adding new policies um, uh, to that. You can start simply with access control. Then you um, you add your anonymization. You, you you can keep adding, and each of these data products having that policy engine embedded in them uh, because it's part of the construct of the data product itself. Um, then we can kind of continue extending them. And this is this is not all a new idea. This exists in the operational world. We just have to think about data differently. You've you've rolled out the data mesh to some of your clients, and as you said, there was some technical challenges associated with that. What are the kind of benefits that um, they've realised out of the projects? The scale and speed. I mean, they uh, initially um, these projects take quite a little bit of time to get to the point that you can see the scale and speed because. As I said, there is no solution to go buy off the shelf. And I don't think that there will be a solution buy off the shelf. This is an ecosystem play and there needs to be a combination of interoperable and solutions coming together uh, to really raise the bar. But the clients that I started started with um, two years ago now, we started from scratch. So we had to build a lot of stuff and that takes time. And I was extremely lucky to work with organizations that were, you know, technically ambitious and we could we could do this um, they had the investment they had commitment to their data strategy and part of that data strategy was, was building this data mesh platform so it took a while and but once you have just even starting with a very primitive um, elements that you can configure and provision these data products then you can see the benefit because you're not dependent on a single team to do it for you anymore. You're not dependent on the data data platform team or BI team or whatever team that is. You can just want this, start this like kind of new teams around the data product, a group of data products, and they can go off and use the platform to bootstrap themselves and start putting creating these data products and get them to the hands of the users. And that was evident when COVID hit us for one of our clients that very quickly um, you know, they provided additional services to their members around consulting um, COVID patients and so on uh, through chatbots. And we had um, very quickly new data products set up to um, capture those conversations um, and, and use them downstream uh, for providing a better experience to their members. And it just took us, you know, a week or 10 days or a couple of weeks. Of course, people didn't sleep during week and <laughs> 10 days. There was a lot of integration going on, but um yeah that's that's become evident and then you, we we have been able to kind of scale out doesn't matter we can scale out on the number of data data product teams uh, easily you have an access around which you can easily scale and what how about some of the unexpected challenges uh associated with projects many where should i start um <laughs> you know you're 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 venturing into the unknown and <laughs> You're just going to come across things that you expected and come across things that you really didn't expect. Um, it, this is a story, actually, a colleague of mine shared with me from that particular account that they they built this kind of data product provisioning engine that was working really well. It made it really, really easy in a declarative fashion to kind of very easy to kind of put the scaffolding, let's say, for a repo of a data product and start kind of declaratively say what this data product is and run a command and get it all provision CI/CD pipeline, 
you know, DataWorks clusters, um, Spark jobs running, uh, your account for your late storage, all of that good, good things that need to come together to support this particular data product. And because it was so easy, like <laughs> the next thing we didn't know, like people started kind of creating these data products, um, maybe too many of them. And then we just run into really hard limits on our cloud, particular cloud provider, just run out of resources. They had never imagined somebody wants to have 200 data lakes because that's how they had designed. So we, we run out of um, basically very hard limits that they've probably coded somewhere in their cloud infrastructure. Uh, that was one of them and the technical side. And then I can talk about the people side if you're interested too. We have a few more minutes. Why not just uh, let's touch on some of the people side because it is a people problem, right? Particularly with product ownership and domain ownership. So what were, what were some of the um, people challenges? So those challenges still remain after two years. So those are really, really hard challenges. Um, the, the ownership of who owns the data, what is this new role? That's certainly something that uh, will go through some sort of an evolutionary, like you will find the people that you already have and you think they, they're closest to the job because you are starting from writing a job description for day one. This job description doesn't even exist today. And then, you know, you will hire like your governance team members and so on. So there's a transformation about that thinking, but then start just conveying what data product means. It takes a long time. People go, what are you talking about? Is this a file? Are you talking about like lake files? Are you talking about tables in the warehouse? And then kind of, especially people that come from that background, try to map their world and language and the things they knew to this, this new thing that never existed before. So that's, translation and vocabulary and then uh, you know influencing how you design and even converse it took a while and still we run into aha moments that people say oh that's what you really meant by data product I thought you meant like a table in a, in a warehouse and if you don't address those concerns early enough what you end up with is a distributed data warehouse you know like distributed monolith like it's just not a good not a good place to be you mentioned that it uh, took a couple of years and all of a sudden it's getting traction, it's firing, taking off. So what's happening for you now? Are you getting called to speaking engagements if you're allowed to do them in person? Uh, you know, what? How are you seeing adoption taking off? Is it the tools vendors? All of the above. It's really interesting because when I wrote the article, in fact, um, you know, for my day job, I said, I want to go and help other people to come up with the next idea. That's why I'm the you know, director of imaging tech or the next tech incubation is the name we use um, internally. And I thought this data mesh thing, I'm done. If it's out there, people will take it or not. And little I knew that my day and night will be consumed by data mesh. Um, so it, really interesting. So it's, you know, the big, big providers, all of them, they're interested in data mesh. They're already putting articles out there. Uh, what we are exploring with them at ThoughtWorks is because we have partnership um, with our clients. It's just... Let's go to clients together and have an open mind and where your you know product makes sense, but we use it to build a data mesh when it doesn't, it doesn't. And you can learn about from that from that experience and evolve your product. So that that is certainly taking off. I think there is a growing number of startups that probably are you know in their early journey and they hear about data mesh and go, oh, this, there is an overlap between what I was thinking to build or what I, the product I'm building and data mesh. So they 
there's a large number of startups that they are kind of exploring that space and trying to see whether there's an overlap. And that's that's really exciting. Um, yes, speaking engagements and uh, this podcast and many, many other ones, I, I feel like people probably are sick of me here, sick of hearing me. Uh, so that's uh, that's happening, but it, but, I, but I feel like that's my responsibility to uh, to share that as much as possible because people are at a different point in their journey. Um, so I'll be doing this for a while, and I'm also writing a book and a brief introduction uh, to data mesh. I'm, I'm struggling to keep it brief. <laughs> I'm working <laughs> through the chapters, and it's 150 pages already, and I'm being told that like you know it needs to be a call to action book. So. There will be a soon, by the, before the end of the year, a call to action book to kind of jot down the, you know, the, the thesis, the tenets and um, everything I know when we know so far, there's a lot to be learned. Is this the, is this the first major publication you've, since your original article on, on DataMate? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this would be the one. So I'm very thoughtful not to be to not be very specific early on, you can be, you know, I can, I can write down the specifics based on what we've built, but that might be a terrible first implementation. Um, yes, it, it will be the first publication. Oh, in fact, uh, I, must, uh, I must say that there will be a, a new book coming out, Architecture, the Hard Parts. It's an architecture book, it's not a data mesh book, but there will be a small part um, covering just data mesh from an architecture perspective, not, not from the, the full concept perspective. And that book I'm contributing to uh, might be coming out before. Well, Zemak, uh, congratulations. Uh, you know, it may feel like it's been a long time coming to success, but really two years is a blink of an eye. And, and I'm sure it's gonna, the journey is going to continue for you for, for quite some time yet. Uh, another fellow Australian based in San Francisco, uh, 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 thought leader at ThoughtWorks. Congratulations on the success you're, you're seeing around Data Mesh and your journey with your new publication. Uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And uh, maybe once your book is published, we can get you back and uh, you can uh, share us some of your thoughts of how you've uh, taken the concept to uh, the, you know, the next level of where you're seeing evolving into the future. Thank you for having me and thank you for those wonderful, thoughtful questions. Uh, before we let you go, Jamak, uh, where can people follow more about your journey on data mesh and among other things? Of course, uh, a few places. Uh, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Jamak D. Um, there is, a, in addition to those, the, there is a data mesh learning community mm-hmm. on Slack uh, that um, a fellow technologist has started it with a lot of passion and energy beyond, but <laughs> beyond what I could uh, do. Uh, and it's called Data Mesh Learning. There is like a, a Slack channel. Um, that's a, it's a great place. I think there's a Microsoft that has been created around it. I'm happy to share the link for your show notes um, later on, uh, which uh, in fact has been an amazing community. We went in a span of a few weeks from nobody to nearly 2,000 people, very engaged. Um, I'm very excited to see how, see how that community grows. And within that community, um, we publish and we share various information about the image. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much, Jamak, for being here. All right, that's a wrap for this round of cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this podcast episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode. 
as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. On behalf of the entire team here at Toro Cloud, this has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!